Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. I'm your host, Phil Huber. I'm joined by John Doyle today and special guest, Vic Teslin, all the way from Canada. All the way. So I uh, hope you enjoy today's show as we talk about Vic, his new book, uh, Working in Small Shops, and what it means to be a minimalist woodworker. So let's get started. This episode of the Shop Notes podcast is brought to you by Woodsmith Magazine. Woodsmith Magazine has been the trusted source for all your woodworking information for over 40 years. From tips and techniques to furniture projects to shop projects, you'll find it all at Woodsmith Magazine. Subscribe today at woodsmith.com. All right, Vic, we're going to assume the same thing that most people assume about Woodsmith is that they've never really heard of us. Okay. And uh, if nobody's ever heard of you, what would they need to know? Turn the other way and run. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, after a a 14-year career in the Canadian military, um, I I left early because I had injured my shoulder. Um, nothing, nothing, uh, of any sort of valor. I used to play rugby for the, uh, for the army <laughs> and, uh, and I got beat up pretty bad in the game. So, um, but anyhow, um, I attended Rosewood studio in, uh, in Ontario, Canada, uh, where I did the sort of full, um, you know, furniture design and making course. Um, and then, um, you know, did a, did have done a few things um, since then. Um, I've um, I was the editor of Canadian Woodworking Magazine for just over a year, hmm. uh, and then ended up going to work for Veritas, uh, mainly in the R and D department, uh, working with an incredible group of designers and and engineers that um, you know produced the the Veritas line. Um, and so recently have um, have struck out on my own um, and. Uh, I'm doing a lot of online teaching and and that sort of thing. Of course, you know, with COVID, it's uh, everything's everything's much easier online. Um, but uh, I've also written, um, you know, quite a few articles um, for various magazines around the world, um, and um, and then I've also written a book um, called The Minimalist Woodworker. And there's a follow up coming up, um, projects from The Minimalist Woodworker. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where I want to take this to begin is where, where you came up with your, I mean, your own journey as a minimalist woodworker, because you know, I followed you online for quite a while now and it's definitely evolved, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, um, a lot of people make the assumption that I am a minimalist woodworker, um, and uh, and and the reality is is that I do use machines, um, and when I have had various size shops over the years, um, you know I've just kind of been very selective about what I use and what I don't use, and and you know because I mean the thought of not woodworking just simply because you don't have the space is ridiculous. Mm, right. um, <laughs> so really, the the book concept came along. Um, because I just got tired of people saying, oh, well, you know, I can't run a table saw, so I can't be a woodworker or, um, you know, I can't run a router because I have like a kid asleep above me in the, in, you know, the room above the garage. And so I can't make noise. And, and so I just, you know, I realized that, you know, there's a lot of people who are not enjoying woodworking because they're under this sort of idea that they need X tool or Y tool in order to be able to do it. Um, so I just wanted to like bring it all right back and say okay listen like you don't need any of that stuff um crazy you can work just with hand tools if you want um and i come at it from a pretty pragmatic um sort of point of view um 
I am not uh, like a, I don't know what you would call them, hand tool uh, aficionado or, um, Monks. you know, I, yeah, I don't wear woolen underwear. I don't work by <laughs> candlelight, um, you know, that sort of thing. So for me, it's like, okay, well, what's practical? You know, what makes sense? You know, if you can't have a table saw, does that mean that you can't word work? Well, no, it just means that you have to break down your lumber in other ways. And um, and so I wanted to introduce those skills to people. Now, again, um, you know, yeah, like I can flatten boards by hand. I can process them by hand, get them thickness by hand, the whole nine yards. But I don't find that that if I have the space and I have the power and the ability to make noise and dust collection and all that other stuff, I'm not going to just do it by hand for the sake of doing it by hand, right? So, right. you know, I always, a lot of my students and people who read the book, like they start out with just hand tools, but then they say, listen, I got, I think I got room for like one power tool, you know, like what should I get? And so I always, I always recommend the bandsaw um, because it's a, just, it's a, such a versatile tool. Right. Um, and man, can that save you some time, you know, like just think about resawing a board in half, you know, like, holy cow. It's like a, it's a long, I've done it by hand and in a couple of different methods. And I mean, it's a long, uh, sweaty process. Um, and so being able to, um, you know, add a machine here or a machine there, or like a drill press, you know, like a lot of times a drill press, it's not loud. Uh, it doesn't belch out dust everywhere. So a lot of times, um, you know, a drill press can be added to the shop. So you know, I, I'm pragmatic about it. I don't, you know, do it for the sake of doing it. Um, you know, use the tools that make sense in your shop. And if you can't have anything that plugs in, that's fine. Yeah, you yeah. can still woodwork. Yep. Yeah, I find that's a really good philosophy for uh, woodworkers that are just starting out to kind of get started with hand tools, decide what you want to do. And then you're like, hey, I'm doing a lot of, you know, ripping boards or you know so then it's like oh well maybe i can invest in this power tool and fit that right. in my shop and move up from there rather than i'm going to buy all the expensive tools and i'm going to start woodworking and you know find out you don't like it or you're doing something differently than you thought and right and then right and i mean tools people do need. it all the time and i did it myself i mean like i bought stuff that i thought i needed and and didn't you know didn't really um, you know, the classic example was I bought this like little job site table saw because I needed a table saw, but I was working uh -huh. in a one car garage. And so I didn't have really the room for one. But so I ended up getting this job site saw, which wasn't, you know, it wasn't a bad tool. But at the same time, it's like I didn't need it. Right. There was other ways to do things. Um, right. You know, and, and then, of course, you know, everybody's table saw kind of turns into a bit of a crap stacker. Um, you know, so you end up like taking a bunch of stuff off of it to use it. And then, you know, but then you put Repiling it all onto your it. bench and then you got to put it back onto the table saw when you're done. And it just, so anyway, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I opted to go, uh, instead with a track saw and, um, no. you know, it really reduced the amount of space that I needed. Um, and even to this day, now that I have a table saw that was given to me for free, I didn't buy it. Um, uh, a friend of mine upgraded his saw to a, one of the saw stops. Um, and so he just gave me his old saw, which is kind of nice of him. But at the same time, I find myself laying a piece of styrofoam down on the top of it all the time and cutting with my track saw, which <laughs> <laughs> the irony's not lost on me, but it's, <laughs> it's pretty funny how that works out. But. It's a cast iron workbench that just happens to have a saw blade in it. That's it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, I can relate to that in the fact that uh, when I when we bought our first house, 
and I was working here, I'm like, I'm a woodworker, so I need a table saw, right? But right. I didn't have a ton of money, so you just go out and buy the the ninety nine dollar bench top saw, you know. And, yeah. And yeah, it does work. Is it ideal? No, but you can make do with it. But I think it's kind of interesting, you know. And I, I live in this world a little bit that woodworking tends to be or feel prescriptive on stuff where, you know, you can't build this project because the illustrations or the photos show, you know, some guy with whatever tool. And so it's like, well, I can't do it unless I have that tool. And there's a lot more to woodworking than that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, I mean, I have a, I have a Panta router, um, but I mean, I don't usually teach my students anything about it because it's like, unless you have one, you know what I mean? There's no point in talking about it. I mean, if you have a drill press and that's what you can do your mortises on, then that's what, then, you know what I mean? That's what, that's what we work with. And that's the right. interesting thing about, um, this whole teaching thing during COVID because it allows me to see what the students have in their shop. Sure. Right. And mm -hmm. so if all you have is a drill press, right? Like, and you don't want to use routers or you don't own any routers, well then that's how you're doing your mortises. Right. It's, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty simple. And so, and even when I used to teach privately, um, before the pandemic, um, I would always try to do the lesson in the student shop because then, you know, you know what they have, you know, mm -hmm. if they have, you know, a, a pretty simple table saw that doesn't have a great fence, well, then you're not going to show them, um, you know, how to build a tenoning jig um, that goes over this, you know, <laughs> crummy aluminum fence because that's not a safe thing to do. Right. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, I think it's just, you know, there's a hundred ways to do pretty much everything in woodworking not a single one of them can be termed as the right one um but you know it, it makes it uh it makes it nice to be able to see what other people have and what they're working with mm -hmm. sure so let's talk about your new book that you have coming out it's uh projects from Minis minimalist woodworker mm -hmm. yeah how so, does it relate to your first one well it basically um is a continuation um, so the first book was designed to get you set up. So, you know, projects like a saw bench and, and, and shooting boards and mallet and, you know, that kind of thing. So basically just to kind of get you sort of kitted out, there was a workbench, of course, um, and then a little shelf that, um, allowed you to put your sort of fledgling, um, kit of tools up there. Sure. Um, and then, um, so the, the book kind of picks up from there. It's like, okay, so you've got, you've got a workbench now, you've got somewhere to process lumber, you've got a place to cut joinery and all that sort of thing. So now let's do a little bit of stuff. So, um, so every project in the book, um, is basically has a duality to it in that, um, if it turns out well, you can bring it into the house and use it as its intended purpose. If it goes pear-shaped, um, which oftentimes they do when you're learning, um, yeah. it can get repurposed as a shop um, tool. So, for example, one of the projects is a album crate. Um, oh. up, up here in Canada, you used to be able to use milk crates um, to store your vinyl in. But now the, the milk companies have gotten wise to this and they've changed the dimensions just slightly of the milk crate so that albums oh. don't actually fit in them anymore. What in the world? I know. So it's very disappointing when you manage to steal a few uh, or <laughs> procure a few. Procure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Skillfully acquire. Um, and then they don't fit. So 
I thought, well, here's a good opportunity to try, you know, making. Um, so I, I basically the project is a set of stackable wooden crates that allow like they nest one on top of each other with albums in them. And then you can make as many as you want. Sure. And they have dovetails in them. And you know what I mean? So there's a lot of learning opportunity. Mm-hmm. But if it turns out like garbage, like if you get really gappy dovetails or you're really not happy with them, then put it in the shop and throw off cuts in it or, you know, throw a router in it and, you know, kind of store it that way. So everything has that sort of duality to it so that if it goes well, great. If it doesn't, no problem. Um, Because I think a lot of woodworkers, and you probably see this as well, it's like they get sort of paralyzed by the need for it to be good, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, I'm building this for my for my wife or I'm building this for my mother-in-law or I'm building this for, you know, whomever. Um, and there's all of this stress attached to it. Um, and if so, if I can teach people in a stress-free environment where it doesn't really matter if yeah. it turns out well or not, um, then that part is removed from them and then they can focus more. You know, they're not as, they're not as, as worried about it. If something doesn't go well, that's ah, no problem. You know, you can just yeah. use it in the shop, and then the next the next one you build, you've learned your lessons from it. Uh, hopefully, um, you yeah. Know, uh, if you if you don't learn your lessons from it, then maybe it's time to look at another, <laughs> you know, hobby. Uh, yeah. You know, some needle cross stitching or something. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's just one of those things that I think um, when you remove that that anxiety and that fear from people, and you're just building for the sake of building. Um, you know, people tend to chill out a little bit and then be cool with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know some of the classes that I've taught, it's, you know, the, the project almost is more the distraction or the vehicle for a skill acquisition or refinement. Exactly. You know, like, you, could... you know, I used to teach, um, I used to teach young people how to build skateboards. Oh, and, yeah. And so we would run these webinars or seminars and, um, you know, uh, a mom or a dad or a grandfather or whomever would accompany the child, right? And so the child's getting a skateboard, which they're pretty stoked about. And then, but but the parent or the guardian is learning how to do bent laminations, right? So mm-hmm. like a skateboard is just a fantastic project to teach somebody how to do bent lamination work. And I, oh, mean, yeah. I use a lot of bent lamination in my own work because I like curves in my work. Um, and for me, like I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a real great source of air dried lumber. So for me, steam bending is difficult. Um, um, and so, and I've always had really good results with, with, uh, bent lamination. So, you know, basically you learn to work with a form, you learn to work with an inexpensive vacuum press, um, and you learn how to take thin pieces of wood, mold them and turn them into something, you know, um, shapely and structural. And all of a sudden you can take that skill and bring it into your shop now um and you can try your hand at making your own like decorative poles or you know things like that oh yeah no that's pretty awesome Mm -hmm. so now one of the things you have done recently is moved into a new shop Mm. and one thing that's i've kind of always found is that there's a little bit of a circular process in that we shape our shops and then they kind of shape us a little bit (laughs) so and, and i know you've had you've had quite a few shops woodworking shops as you've gone along so what how has how have they shaped you in making this new one well it's interesting because like you every time you work in a different space 
you know, you kind of see aspects of that space that you either like or don't like, or maybe covet for your own shop. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and so that's, it's actually almost a bit of a, a, of a hindrance in a sense, because you, you know, I've traveled, um, all over the world and seen all kinds of interesting shops. You know, I, uh, whether they were huge, you know, multi-thousand square foot situations all the way to the smallest one I saw was, a an apartment in Sweden where the master bedroom was basically the only reason you knew it was a master bedroom is because there was a bed in the corner. <laughs> but but everything else was hand tool woodworking, you know, like yeah. so um obviously single. <laughs> um but um <laughs> but you know, and like uh instead of a toaster in the kitchen there was a Tormek, you know, like <laughs> so it just it was a really cool space and I mean it was probably under under three hundred square feet total. Oh wow. So yeah. um you know, so you see all of these interesting ways that people and different workflows and, and, you know, stuff like that. So, so for me, like, you know, I started off, my first shop was 40 square feet. You know, it was, uh, it was under the stairs in the basement. Uh, I had room for a workbench and some tools on the wall and on the floor. And that's about it. Um, so then, you know, I went to a one car garage and then, and then built a house that had like a purpose-built shop um and then you know which i kind of designed and, and worked with and then you know things in life change and so i ended up moving again and um now um you know this shop is about you know maybe 350 square feet so it's not massive by any stretch um right. but it's the first time i have a brick building that is separate of the house Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So it is completely independent. It has its own 100 amp service. Um, and it is basically, you know, all encompassing. It's not part of the house, which is kind of cool. Um, and of course, that brings its own challenges. It didn't have 100 amps out there, right? So, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, that um, that gets exciting, um, you know, watching guys <laughs> drag uh <laughs> you know, this cable this thick through, you know, this massive trench that they had to dig and, um, you know, and, and put it all up. But I was able to have everything, all my 220 stuff and everything in there, no problem. I've got tons and tons of power. Um, yeah. But it's interesting. It's like I'm in there now, um, and it's been about six months or so that I've sort of had everything kind of positioned, and I did things in a little different way where I kind of created this little hub in the center um, which has like my dust collector, uh, bandsaw, joiner, planer, combo machine, and table saw. And they're all kind of grouped in the center instead of like pushed out. You know, typically oh, the yeah. table saw is right dead center and then everything else seems to be pushed out to the periphery. Um, right. But what this allowed me to do was my thought was, well, I could probably keep all of the runs for the dust collection down to 10 feet, right? And so, yeah, well. yeah, so basically all I have is a 10 feet flex hose going from the machine to right to the dust collector. I mean, I've never had dust collection like this before. Um, yeah. You know, when you can feel it pulling through the gap in the jointer, <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, we got some serious yeah. dust collection going on here. Um, but yeah, it just allowed me to try different things. Um, and I always do like a kind of uh, uh, a mock up. You know, like I'll do a, a, a 2D drawing and then I have like my little cutouts for all my little machines and, you know, I can move them around and try them in different uh, positions. And so it's just it's one of these things where it's like this is the first shop I've had where I feel like 
I can be really productive in. Mm. Um, a lot of the shops I had, uh, and again, like I wasn't, I was at a different part of my life as well. I, I you know, I had a full-time job. I didn't have to worry about, um, you know, producing in order to make money. Um, you know, I was doing it more as a side hustle and I didn't really have to worry about it. But, um, you know, now I've got sort of the eye of like, okay, I got to be like organized and everything has to be working properly and, and all those other things. And I don't know that that's something that is just because I'm a professional. I think, I think most hobbyists could really benefit from that mind frame because when you've got an hour to be in the shop, you don't want to be messing around looking for stuff and trying to figure out where you left off and, you know, oh yeah, oh, yeah. I haven't hooked up that mm -hmm. part of the dust collection yet. And, you know, so I feel yeah. like a lot of times I've sort of hit the ground running and then just go with it. Uh, whereas with this shop, I'm like purposefully slowing down so that I can like, okay, how do I address this? How do I address this? Um, do I need that? Is that, you know, worth it? And I'm very relentless when it comes to assessing what needs to be there and what doesn't need to be there. And I largely determine that by the amount of dust on it. Um, <laughs> if it's got a good layer of dust on it, that probably means it's not getting used all that much and I have to do some thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the patina doctrine. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly. And if yeah. it's and if it's you know, if it's something like so for example, I used to have a lot more hand tools than I do now. Um, oh sure. You know, mm -hmm. But now it's like, okay, well, I have other ways of doing that. Um, so, you know, I kept some of them for purposes of teaching and stuff like that to be able to, you know, because there's not really any way to talk somebody through setting up a rabbit plane. You kind of have to have uh, one there, have yeah. one there to show them. But, but for the most part, like, you know, I have sort of my main sort of hand tools that kind of surround me. And then I have... Um, you know, uh, what, what would be referred to nowadays as an anarchist tool chest, but um, it's actually a chest that was built in the 1800s that I inherited through somebody. Um, cool. And yeah, it's fantastic. I didn't have to build one myself, too, which is great. Because um, <laughs> I wasn't sure if I'd enjoy working out of a chest, you know what I mean? Like, uh, mm -hmm. And I don't, I've learned. Um, <laughs> because I did put everything in there and put it beside my workbench and then worked like that for about a year. And I was like, no. I don't like this. No. Yeah. No. Um, I, I like drawers. Yeah. I, well, drawers are cool, except for the fact you can't see in them. Sure. And like for in my brain, if I can't see what's in it, it's gone. Mm -hmm. Right. It's kind of like the conversation you guys were having the other day about kitchens. And it's like that that area in the way, way back mm -hmm. in, the, mm -hmm. in the kitchen cabinets where things go to die. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's for me. Like I have like anything that has a drawer or a door there's like one of those like labels on it that says what's in it <laughs> because if it if i don't i don't know what's in there and i never will yeah um, yeah so that's usually how i am with drawers too i'm like pulling out looking at pulling, like going all right. the way down all the drawers looking in each one and oh but it's, it's always in the last one <laughs> yeah, yeah. or in a completely <laughs> other unit like so, yeah. yeah 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 so for me it's you know i def like i like being organized that way uh, but at the same time, I need to see what's in it. So a lot of my tools that I use, like, like, so like my bench planes, my chisels, my marking, measuring, all that other stuff is out in the open. And so I just have to look and grab, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have to think about where it is or whatever, but everything else now lives in that tool cabinet, which is good. Cause you can close it. It's got a nice, reliable dust seal on it. And, um, yeah. you know, so the tools that I use infrequently or, you know, um, like my shoulder plane, 
right? Um, sometimes you need to tune up a, a joint, but and you're not cutting joinery by hand. You don't need it out all the time. All the time, yeah. You know, so it's just a matter of sort of streamlining things and then, you know, getting... I feel like I've got a good flow in there now, which is good. Um, you know, I'm not fighting anything. I'm working sure. with a student right now who every time he goes to do something he's like swearing because he can't find it or it's not set up right or it's only partially set up or whatever so i said listen we're not going to build another thing until you sort this shop out because yeah. mm -hmm. you're stressing me out <laughs> <laughs> now do you think that's something that's carried over from your first under the stairs kind of shop of kind of being really deliberate in tool choices or i mean even technique is kind of determined by space and tools and mindset on that oh absolutely i think um you know you, with, with that small space i mean you had to be really critical at a time in my career when i didn't know enough to know right right so you think you need something but you don't really um and then you, you know 10 years later you look at that tool and you go wow why did i buy that um, you know, so you get that kind of buyer's remorse a decade later, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I feel like that initial sort of start, um, really kind of set the, set the pace for the rest of it where it's like, I'm always very careful about what I put and what I don't put. And, um, you know, the military was like that too. I mean, it was very, um, you know, I was in the combat arms, I was in the artillery and of course there's a lot of equipment, a lot of gear. Um, and so, you know, that, that gear needed to be maintained properly, you know, like, uh, it needed to be put away in a serviceable condition, right. Which was the rule. Um, which is why, like, I have a hard time putting a dull chisel away, right? <laughs> like, because it hurts you a little bit. Yeah. Because I know I'm going to need it the next day. I'm going to come out, I'm going to grab it and it's going to be dull and I'm going to have to go and tune it up. So mm -hmm. like, I try to put my tools away sharp. I try to put them away clean. Um, you know, every time I, um, take a plane iron out of a plane to sharpen it, I take that time to wipe down the inside, maintain it, put a little bit of oil in there, make sure that it's always good to go. Because if you mm -hmm. let your tools, um, go to crap, then, um, you know, then don't be surprised that they don't work well. Well, yeah. that's just it. And a lot of people say, oh, well, this tool rusted and all that other stuff. Well, yeah, they really only rust if you let them. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's been my experience. Unless you live in an oceanside shack uh, yeah. with no with no doors on the shop, uh, you know, it can be a little bit difficult. But yeah, so I think all of that, like all of my life experience, kind of you know helps me, you know, maintain this sort of organized and sort of streamlined situation. Um, you know, I just uh, and as I replace tools, I get rid of other tools. You know what I mean? Like I recently uh, invested in the um, in the uh, the little the small Festool trim router. Um, oh yeah. Because I I do a lot of like veneering and stuff, and so I do a lot of solid edge banding, and right. it has that horizontal base that allows you to just like flush cut right oh, to like yeah. you don't have to do a single thing after it. You know. Yeah. Um, and so I started using it, and then. You know, I have three other compact routers like that, um, so I'm getting rid of all of them because it's like I don't need them. 
you know, yeah. and I don't have a shop where I need, I don't want to be that guy that has 17 routers with a different bit in each one. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I uh -huh. need the three quarter inch straight bit router. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mind changing the bits. Yeah. No. And it doesn't take that long anymore now either. It's not like it's. Yeah. It's pretty simple. I mean, um, depending on the system you have, a lot of them don't even have a second wrench anymore. You know? Yeah. So it just, uh, yeah. So I just, I. I try to keep things nice and clean, nice and streamlined, and not have a whole bunch of stuff. I even looked at my router bits the other day and was appalled. You know, over the years, it's like, why did I buy that? You know? Yeah. So those are all going on Craigslist. And, you know, even if I get like five bucks for it, I'm, you know, it's better than yeah. just chucking it, you know? Yeah. Well, and you've passed it along to somebody else. And, right. You know, hopefully uh, they can get some use out of it. And, oh, absolutely. And I, you know, I think that's something we've discussed, John, in previous podcasts is the idea of, I mean, it's really easy to be, to find that buyer's remorse or to feel regret about something. But in the process, you've learned something either about the type of work that you want to do or the approach you want to take to doing something. So, I mean, yeah, you've lost some money on it, but in the grand scheme of things, I think you probably come out ahead of it. Right. And you always feel good when you gain that space back after you get move it on to somebody else that's going to use it. And like, look at all the space I have. Now I can get something yeah. else. <laughs> yeah. That's what it always boils down to, isn't it? It's yeah. like you either need to sell something to get the money out of it or to get the space out of it in, yeah. in yeah. order to get the next thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, no, the I other remorse that you have too is that, you know, a lot of times you try to get away with buying something maybe less expensive or, you know, which mm -hmm. usually ends up being less quality. Um, a lot right. of times, you know, and my dad always taught me, he said, you know, when you buy a good tool, you only cry once. Um, but when you buy a, a cheap tool, you cry and cry and cry. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so, um, so, you know, as I, you know, I've had to make inexpensive pur purchases, you know, in the past, but now I'm, I'm in a position where I can replace them with something that's a little bit better quality. And then, you know, it's not that I regret buying, you know, um, you know, a lot of some of the tools I have, you know, were given to me were free, um, you know, yeah. and so, um, you know, they, they work really well. But um, in some cases, it's, you know, you sort of think uh, I probably should have splurged a little bit more for it, for something a bit better. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you end up buying a, if you end up buying anything on Amazon, I feel I feel like it's, I have a lot of students who have bought um, <laughs> like like um, I can't remember the name of it, but it's like a black. It's a power tool, but it's black and it's got uh, orange writing on it. I can't remember what they're called, but uh, is it anyway. Win or Oh yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. W E N. Right, I and I mean they're like tool-like objects. I mean they're not, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, <laughs> they look like a tool, but they're not really. Um, and so you know, people buy them because they're inexpensive, and then they get mm -hmm. them into their shops, and they're like, oh my goodness, this thing doesn't work. And then mm -hmm. you know, right away, there's that remorse, right? Yeah. Well, I've also had it where people have felt. Uh, I don't know, it's like they almost take it personally in the fact that I have these tools, but when I try and do X operation, it doesn't turn out I'm a terrible woodworker. Right. When it's not necessarily the case. Uh, well, I mean, sometimes you can legitimately blame your tools. Oh, I agree 100%. Like, I mean, like, I, I experience that with hand planes all the time. Like, um, you know, um, 
a lot of people, you know, will say, oh, well, you know, they don't make them like they used to make the Stanleys. And it's like, well, thank goodness for that. <laughs> uh, you know, companies in North America like Lee Nielsen and Veritas, like, I mean, they, you know, they took all of the kind of design cues and functionality cues from Stanley, but then like actually made them so that they work. Um, right. You know, and it, like I teach people how to soup up you know, vintage Stanley planes, right? Because like some people are really interested in that. And I think there's a lot to learn about a hand plane by completely stripping it apart, right? Mm -hmm. And then putting it back together, um, you know? So um, there's no, it's not like you lo lose value in doing that, but it's always awesome when someone like soups up like a number five Stanley and they put like a hawk iron in it and they get it all up and running. It's ready to go and they use it and they're like, yeah, yeah, this is really, really good. And then like a few months later, they buy like a low angle plane, right? From either like Lee Nielsen or Veritas and they're like, they're yeah. blown away. There's just like, this is completely <laughs> different. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, you can fix up a Pinto right? and it'll drive. And you hope you yeah. don't get rear-ended, but then you buy a Porsche 911 Targa, and now all of a sudden, <laughs> now you're moving. It's like, oh, now you're getting something. Now, now, now things are happening, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's it's just it's, and I think you have to go through that. You have, you know what I mean. And I have Stanley planes in my shop. Like, I mean, you know, my favorite sort of scrub plane is a Stanley number five with a cambered iron in it and you know it doesn't need to work really well it just it's an axe with a sole that's all it is you know <laughs> it just needs to remove stuff real fast and then i'll worry about the surface later you know yeah um but yeah it just it's it's yeah it's definitely one of those things where you certainly can blame your tools like a cheap saw um you know like those sorts of things like i was very fortunate um to get my hands on a bad axe um Oh, a yeah. bad axe panel saw and uh like that's like nothing else in this world <laughs> like i i've owned old distance i've owned newer saws i've owned all kinds of stuff but just something about a really well-made tool that is sharpened it's all hand fettled and hand tuned and it's like it just goes it just does what it's mm -hmm. supposed to do and all of a sudden you're like oh i wasn't a horrible woodworker <laughs> yes i just had an old distance yeah. saw that had just a bit too much set on one side and it kept yeah. coming like, out yeah. yeah i can make left hand turns all day long <laughs> that's right yeah that's it well and you alluded to it too is like being able you know talked about maintaining your tools but you know when you do a class and you teach somebody and you hand them a tool, you know, like a chisel or something that you've sharpened, mm. whereas they're like, I brought, I bought these just before the class. They're brand new. Of course they're sharp, you know, being able to yeah. see that light go off and the angels singing when they, yeah. Oh, sharp. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a totally different thing. Yeah. And people, I, you know, I always ask that, you know, when people say, oh, well, I'm having trouble taking like really fine shaving and it's like, okay, well, I know what's going on. And so I say, well, how did you sharpen your tools? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, they're sharp. Mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like some people's idea of sharp is like just kind of touching the chisel to the spinning uh, um, belt grinder, you know, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. which, you know, uh -huh. in some cases that may work. I mean, I, if you're banging out quick mortises and two by fours or you know whatever maybe but um yeah so you've got to sort of have this idea sharpening's a big one like that's a huge uh gate for people to get through as far as like going to the sort of next level with woodworking is once 
once you learn, I took like a weekend long sharpening class at Rosewood when before I was even a student there. And I mean, that was like the light bulb moment where I understood what sharp really was. Um, and then, you know, strove towards it all the time. Right. So, um, nowadays it's like, now it's just sort of commonplace, but I always, you know, I always encourage everybody to like, you know, figure it out, you know, however you have to do it, whether you want to use it with a machine or you want to do it with a, with a jig or, you know, whatever, just figure it out, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now the shop that you're in now, how, how is it conditioned? Cause you talked about it being a separate building. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that that's something that wasn't in there to begin with. No. Um, when I bought it, um, it had a wood stove in it. Um, and the guy that uh, owned this place beforehand used to do a lot of sort of mechanical work. So he had like a half built go-kart in there and he had like a boat motor that was, you know, in various uh, pieces all over the place. And, and then he also had a, a wall in the dividing the space. So on the other side is where he stored his like lawnmower and all that other stuff it was kind of like a, a, like a shed or whatever. So first thing I did was I busted that wall out of there to get maximum kind of square footage out of it. Um, but then, um, I took the wood stove out. Um, you know, like everybody was like, Oh, but the wood stove, that would have been so nice. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Nice and romantic and, you know, have the nice heat and all that other stuff. But the reality is, is that when the, when you tell the insurance company, you've done that, Oh yeah, right. Yeah, they yeah. have a litter of kittens right there in front of you. Um, <laughs> so it's like, no, 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 we're not doing that. Plus, you know, you lose a ton of space right around mm -hmm. that oh, yeah. wood stove, you know? Um, and so I just didn't need that aggravation. So I took that out and I put one of those split units in um, huh. where, so you have like the condenser unit outside and then on the wall up top is, you know, the, the heating and the, and the cooling and the fan and all that other stuff. So, yeah. So it's set up, uh, you know, we bought this place in August last year. So, um, you know, the air conditioning is lovely, uh, you know, in the summertime uh, and then the wintertime um, it's a really, it's a really well-built building. Like it's brick all the way around and sure. fully insulated and everything else. So I'm shocked at how little we've been paying to heat the place, um, in the winter time. Although here in Southern Ontario, it's like, it's not winter. Like we used to have in Northern Ontario where it was, you know, six months of snow, but, um, but in this case here, yeah, it, it, um, you know, it's nice and comfortable in there, you know? So it's, I like it. It's, uh. But again, like, you know, all of that comes at a cost and, um, you know, you, you got to sort of weigh your options. You know, I could have done like sort of space heaters and, and uh, like a window banger air conditioner or, mm, or no yeah. air conditioning. Um, right. You know, but uh, I don't know. Like I, I spent a lot of time in my life uncomfortable. Um, so, <laughs> you know, after a career in the military where you, you know, you're the, the world is your sleeping cot. Um, you know, um, I, I don't want to be uncomfortable anymore. Yeah. I don't want to be dripping sweat yeah. onto my, yeah. on my projects uh -huh. or, you know, having to like wear a toque while I'm woodworking or sorry, a hat, mm -hmm. beanie, whatever you guys call yeah. it. That's a toque's a Canadian word, I guess, but. No, I had, uh, one of my roommates in college was from upper Michigan, which is half Canada, right. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he used toque all the time. Oh, okay. So. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people look at me yeah. funny when I say toque, and they're like, what is that? And I'm like, well, it's a winter hat. Winter hat. Yeah. yeah. What else would you call yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. 
Now, John and I can definitely relate because my shop is in the back of my unattached two-car garage, and I have a space heater, and it's okay, but when it gets really cold out, then it's like, no, I just yeah. can't or won't. And then in the summer, there's, you know, you're setting up three fans and hope you get a breeze that day. And right. Yeah. It def- it's so I can imagine nice. that the split unit is nice just because it just evens it out. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's... I mean, it, it, like in the, in the winter months, I leave it set to, oh, oh here we go. I leave it set to 18 degrees <laughs> Celsius. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> We'll try not to get into the metric imperial debate. Um, but um, so, I mean, it's, you know, it's like sweater weather, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So uh-huh. um, and then if it if it if I want it a little bit warmer, if I'm doing finish or a glue up or whatever, then I'll, you know, bump it up a little bit, um, you know. And then in the summertime, I just I'm more concerned about the humidity, um, to be honest. Right. It's the humidity that kills you. It can be like it could be 90 degrees in there. Right. But if it's but if the humidity is 50 percent or so, you know, it's tolerable, I find. Sure. Whereas if it's like if it's 75 degrees and but the humidity is 80. Oh, yeah. It's just not comfortable, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're pitting out just walking into your shop. you know. Well, that's just... it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you need it like Arizona, right? Like it's a dry heat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is a, which is a crock of hooey, by the way, because I've been to Arizona in the summertime when I was in the military, and they were like, "Oh no, but it's a dry heat." I'm like, it's "No, it's still heat. friggin' hot." Yeah, yeah, it's horrible. That's called roasting. Yeah, yeah, like literally the de- definition of roasting. Absolutely, it's like just a slow go, you know, like you're just like you're there for a week and you're like, "Oh, I'm done." Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So one thing that I wanted to touch on is, uh, and we had br- you had brought it up earlier. Now that you're kind of a full time woodworker, is uh, what can what can hobbyist woodworkers learn from professionals, and also conversely, what can hobbyists teach professionals? Because oh, I feel like sometimes there's the, you know, sometimes there's the dichotomy of, you know, people who will say, well, you know, you're a hobbyist woodworker, so you have all the time in the world. Mm. <laughs> and that's not necessarily true either. No. You know, it's interesting. I always say that hobbyists have all the power. Um, <laughs> they do because they they can they don't have to worry about making a living. Right. That's a lot of stress. Uh, oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, or it can be. Um and so when you're a hobbyist, like you can experiment, you can try different things. And if it doesn't go well, eh, okay, you're out a bit of time and you're out a bit of material. Who cares? Right. Yeah. But if you're, if you're a woodworker professionally and you, you can't afford to screw things up. Right. Um, and then I think hobbyists, you know, could really learn about efficiency from professionals. Um, you know, and, and like I kind of alluded to earlier, like if you're a hobbyist, your time might be more precious than that of a, of a, of a professional, because a professional's in his shop eight, 10 hours a day, you know, six days a week, you know, they're, they're working the whole time. But when you get like, you know, between familial responsibilities and that sort of thing, like you might have two hours in a weekend to get into the shop Mm -hmm. or a couple of nights, you know, through the week, you know, or whatever. Um, 
so you got to be like you got to be ready to go right like when you walk in that door um it's it's go time you're it's it's time to play um you know and i think you know like uh like michael fortune the canadian uh, furniture maker up here he um He's like, like the one thing I learned from him is that he is so completely regimented. Like, really? He, yeah, he is in his shop at, you know, whatever, 8 a.m. He's had his breakfast. He's had his coffee. He goes in that shop and he works until like, he works until 10. What is it? He works until 10, 10. And then he stops and he has a cup of tea and whatever his wife made that day. And then sure. at 1030, he's back on again and he doesn't walk out of there until one o'clock. He has half an hour lunch. And then like, so he's very regimented. He does not answer the phone. He does not talk to clients. He does not do anything other than what the task is for that day. And wow. like most woodworkers are more of like a fart in a windstorm. You know, they're kind of, they're like walking like, ah, oh, what am I going to do today? You know, and they, yeah. you know, they kind of go in there and which is fine. But, right. it, and if that's what you enjoy doing, the puttering and the goofing around and stuff like that, that's, you know, that's for a lot of people, that's a great part of the hobby. But if you're trying to get a coffee table built or you're, you know what I mean? You're like, you're, you're looking at the, the shop, like I just saw, uh, I was on the website and I saw the shop stand. Your guys are giving away a free set of plans um, for, for the rolling oh, yeah, shop yeah. cart. Is that yours, John, or? Um, I think that might have been Ted's. I don't know. No, I, well, I, John did help build that one. Okay. So, yeah, he was, yeah. But, yeah, so, I mean, that, you know, that shop card is, you know, it's a great little plan. You know what I mean? For, um, if, and so if you're looking to build that, you know, you want to, you want to get through it. You don't want to, you know, kind of be futzing around for days. You know, I always used to, I always used to laugh when I would go to Woodworking in America and, um, of course, you know, that was at the time when, um, Chris, uh, Schwarz had done his book on the, on the Rubo bench. Uh, oh, yeah. and, uh, he, you know, y you'd see people there every year, right. They would, they would sort of like, they would turn up, uh, every year and you'd be like, Hey, how's it going? You know, you'd recognize them and they'd be like, Oh yeah, really good. Like I got the second leg of my Rubo installed this year, man. It's like so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, Whoa. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah. yeah, like I mean, if I take a week to build a workbench, I'm gonna panic, right? Because yeah. it's like, whoa! Like I really, uh, you know, I'm I'm wasting a lot of time. So, so now I promised Logan, who's usually one of our other hosts here, yeah. that we would discuss it. So I'm gonna say ten words and have you go from there. Metric system. Hmm. Ten words metric system see, see what i did there mm -hmm. uh so you obviously teach woodworkers in the u.s as well as in canada and therefore have to be um dimensionally bilingual no i don't <laughs> <laughs> no i don't i don't at all actually no <laughs> no i get a lot of grumbling from american students do you yeah, yeah but i but i i encourage them to try it um, sure. you know, because, and listen, up until maybe five years ago, I was still working in Imperial as well. Um, oh, really? You know, yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, you know, Canada is, is metric, you know, kind of, um, sort of 
right? Like, like in public, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, when we think someone's looking. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, um, like, so for example, like, um, uh, we measure things in kilometers an hour versus miles. We measure, um, weights at the gro- grocery store in grams or kilograms. Um, but, you know, but when we talk about one's body weight, a lot of times we still refer to them weighing in pounds. And um, so there's this sort of like, you know, it's not like a place like Sweden where it's like it's metric, right? Like right. that's it. Um, you know, and they, you know, quite frankly, if you're going to change your system of measurement, they did it really well. They basically made it illegal in the 70s to sell or measure anything in the imperial system. Oh, really? And so it forced the change. It was basically an overnight change. And you had and then after a certain number, certain um, amount of time, you were able to then start to, you know, you could start selling imperial measuring tapes again for people who still wanted to use them or whatever. But what it did is it forced the change. And then you don't get these sort of double sort of. Um, you know, like England is the same way, right? Like they, oh, yeah. you know, some work in millimeters, some work in inches. Um, they're still in miles an hour. They drive on the wrong freaking side of the road, you know, like, <laughs> and they'll, they'll tell you it's the right side though. Yeah. But they're not wrong, yeah. but they're, mm-hmm. they're wrong. Um, but <laughs> there, that, that might get a couple of calls today. Um, there you go. but yeah, so the metric system, um, the hardest part about using the metric system in woodworking is visualization, right? Sure. If I say to you, listen, I need a piece about, you know, 300 mil, right? You're going to look at me like, what? What? Right? Yeah. If I said 12 inches, you'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No problem. Yeah. Right? So being able to visualize comes like, it's just like a language, right? When you start to be, when you're learning a new language and you start to think in that language, now you've got it right yeah and you're not constantly translating exactly so i'm at a point now because i wrote so many articles for magazines in germany and and england and um uh australia um you know they all work in the metric system and so i was kind of forced into it and then as i started doing that i started being understanding like the advantages here you know what i mean so you know like you're not adding a bunch of fractions that have different denominators you know, and then, and I know some people are pretty fast at it. You know what I mean? That they can add an eighth and three, six, 30 seconds and, a, and four, and four sixteenths, five sixteenths, you know, and all that other stuff. Uh, but I find like, my God, the amount of times I've done like three sixteenths instead of three eighths oh, or, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, and so for me, working in base 10 is just, it's a much simpler situation. And in fact, I don't even care if you work in the metric system. If you work in Imperial, at least work in decimal inches. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because if you can say 10.2 inches, right? Like now you don't have this crazy fraction action happening, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so I find that the math becomes much easier, um, you know, and then, you know, you can you can move a decimal place over and go from millimeters to centimeters or centimeters to, um, you know, kilometers. You can do whatever you want. Um you know, and then there's also all the associations of like, uh, you know, a millimeter, like, what is it? Uh, a gram is, a gram of water is like one centimeter cubed. And like, there's all oh, these yeah. other relationships that happen, like mm-hmm. within the metric system that kind of make them sort of seamlessly transition from one to the other. So anyway, I, I think like I get a lot of pushback 
um, from some people. And it's like, I just say, listen, let like, just try it. Right. Sure. When you're working with me, you're, you've hired me, you're learning, like, let's try it. And if you don't like it, that's fine. You can go back to, um, you can go back to Imperial. But like when I run a webinar and stuff and it's a project based class, the students all get a cut list in, in millimeters. And if they need, okay. to, if they, if they prefer to work in, in inches, then by all means, um, you know, there's free yeah. calculators and trans and, and, you know, uh, apps that will, you know, kind of go from one to the other. So you can do that. But, and then when they start seeing like seven sixty fourths, they're like, you know, so, <laughs> and that's the other thing too. I think like a lot of times the fidelity is too high and like, you know, 30 seconds of an inch are about as, as small as a dimension that I want to work with, which is about a millimeter. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you start getting into 60 fourths and stuff and it's like, first of all, my 45 plus year old eyes cannot even see <laughs> those things. Um, you know, and really a, a lot of my students realize that, um, the measurements are kind of just for like rough sort of starting, but when it really mm. counts, I'm taking a measurement, I'm doing a referential measurement right off of the, right off of whatever yeah. it is. And that's the, yeah, you're gauging to real life. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's can be frustrating when you're, as, as you guys probably understand, when you have to create a plan, it's yeah. like, well, oh, it yeah. needs to have a dimension. <laughs> And sometimes a dimension's yeah. ridiculous, right? It's like yeah. who the heck would pick that number? But it just it ends yeah. up being. Yeah, we that need way. to have that number, but you can't. Right. Yeah. And you can't really say like, well, it doesn't matter from here on out, but because it sort of <laughs> does. Right. But yeah, I, I suppose yeah. you could once you got to a certain point, you could say, okay, take a story stick and, you know, and then whatever that opening is, that's how wide your drawer is, and then, you know what I mean? But that's sort of an abstract. A lot of people would really struggle with that. That'd be an interesting course idea, though. Yeah, it would be. I think it would be kind of fun. It's like where, you know, you're going to get a, a basic case, you know, assembled and put together. But then after that, everything is dependent on what already exists, whether it's drawers or even the top, because then it's whatever your case plus whatever kind of overhang you want. So there's your sizing for all that. You know, you don't really, you know, outside of the initial 12 pieces, you're kind of done with a measuring tape. Yeah, well, I used to teach a class on making a workbench. And of course, you know, the ideal sort of height for a workbench is up to your wrist, you know, sort of in the standing yeah. position for a lot of hand tool operations. And so we literally used to start the class with a story stick. And I, I give them a story stick for that would is long enough to do the length of the bench, which we were doing about 60 inches. Um, and uh, every every student got a stick, and then they would all help each other put that first mark on there. And then I'd say, okay, there's your top material. Mark from there down. There's your top material. Everything else, leg. Yeah. You don't need any other measurements now. You've got the length of your bench. Um, we we had the width as well. Um, but everything else was all referential and people were like, oh, this is fantastic. And it's like, yeah, no math because math <laughs> leads to mistakes and mistakes leads to drinking. So, right. Yeah. And then to the dark side, to the dark, so, side. to the dark side. So true. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's, uh, we usually wrap things up here by kind of talking about projects that we're working on. I'm in the midst of finishing up a dresser for my son excellent and uh it's a craftsman piece and 
been battling usually just weather in an unconditioned shop on when you can like when's the really good day to apply a couple of coats of finish mm. and then it's like that's what i'm doing today yeah so, yeah that's always tough eh when you're i remember those days where you'd have to like really pick and choose what you were doing at certain times yeah i've also discovered that over the winter i had just been using my tools and not really sharpening mm. them so you know it's like you grab this chisel because it's sharp then the next day you grab that chisel because it's sharp and now i'm gonna be the piper on that one and yeah sharpen them all i used to do that with card scrapers all the time i would just buy yes. more card scrapers <laughs> so that so then and then i would spend an afternoon doing card scrapers and then when they would get dull they would go into the dull pile and then like mm -hmm. anyway i stopped doing that i think i have like two card scrapers now yeah so how about you, Vic? What do you got working on? Um, so right now I'm working on uh, a couple of uh, articles and some content for a lumber company that's here in Canada that um, I do some, I create some content for. Um, and uh, and I have, I'm working on a commission right now for a uh, blanket chest uh, for, for a client. They wanted a nice sort of more mid-century modern walnut um, blanket chest. So just at the point now where I'm going to put the um, it's almost done I just got to put the, the hinges and the stays and and that's kind of stuff on it and then just a couple just a probably just another coat of wax and I think I'm I'm off to the races so cool yeah yeah so that that'll be cool and then um, and then I have to start um, building furniture for this house because my goal <laughs> the goal is to have every piece of furniture built by me by the time I oh, that's by sweet. the time I cack off, so yeah. I figure I got a good, I figure I got a good thirty years before, before I have to worry uh -huh. about that. You know, knock on sure, knock on wood. Yeah, um, but yeah, will uh, Vic, where can we find your new book? Um, so uh, you can get it right from my website, VicTeslin dot com. Um, that's if you want a signed copy. Um, so obviously I'm not Amazon. I can't uh, send it to you for free and all that fun stuff. So, um, so you end up paying a little bit more for it that way. Um, but um, you can get it um, right from, uh, from the publisher, Blue Hills. Um, and um, I'm sure that it'll be available in, you know, sort of most woodworking retailing stores or, um, or bookstores or anything like that. So, Sure. And then that's where we can also find you for your classes as well. Yeah, yeah, my classes. And then I'm also, I do quite a bit of stuff on Instagram. Um, not on the YouTubes very much. Um, just not my not my scene. Um, sure. And, uh, and much to my 21-year-old daughter's chagrin, I'm also on TikTok, which... Uh... <laughs> which is take that yeah they're like whoa you're kind of old for tiktok and i'm like well you know <laughs> there you go all right well we'll put links to all of that in the show notes page uh otherwise if you have any questions comments or smart remarks about today's episode you can leave that on the description on our youtube channel or you can send us an email woodsmith at woodsmith.com that wraps it up for another episode of the Shop Notes podcast, and we'll see you again next week, everybody. Bye. This episode of Shop Notes podcast is brought to you by Woodsmith Plans. You'll find nearly a 1,000 plans covering everything that you'd want to build. From furniture projects to gift projects, kitchen accessories, workshop projects and jigs, and more. 
Find your next project at woodsmithplans.com.